All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. In 1681, King Charles II granted a large piece of land in North America to William Penn, an English writer and member of the Religious Society of Friends, better known as the Quakers. King Charles did this in order to square a debt he owed to Penn's father. Upon receiving this deed, Penn immediately set sail to the New World to claim his prize, which soon became known as Penn's Woods, or as we more commonly know it today, Pennsylvania. William Penn was also responsible for founding the city of Philadelphia, which, back in the early 1700s, became a vital commercial and port city that stood in direct competition in Boston and New York. In 1705, an inn was opened in northeastern Philly that catered to a combination of fur traders, trappers, and wealthy expatriates from England. Many of these wealthy one-percenters liked to hunt foxes in the woods surrounding the area in an attempt to recapture some of life's little pleasures they missed back home. Thus, the inn became known as the Fox Chase Inn. And from there, so did the surrounding area forever after become known as Fox Chase. For many decades, the Fox Chase area remained a retreat for the wealthiest members of society. When railroad tracks were laid down in 1876, this only made it easier for Philadelphia's aristocrats to make the commute to the country. But despite this, for much of the next century, the area remained sparsely settled. Back in the 1950s, Susquehanna Road was a half-mile long country lane in Fox Chase connecting Pine Road on the west with Vary Road to the east. Back then, there weren't any houses along that stretch of road. Although there was a large school for what were described as wayward girls run by the Catholic Sisters of the Good Shepherd. In addition, part of the woods surrounding Susquehanna Road had turned into a dumping ground for local residents' trash and other unwanted things. There were still a few fur trappers who worked the area as well. One such individual was John Stachowiak, who was 18 years old back in 1957. John lived on Pine Road near Susquehanna. During the last weekend of February, he bicycled his way down Susquehanna on the way to play basketball in a local church gymnasium. Along the way, he decided to stop and check on his fur traps he'd set out earlier in the season. John's parents didn't approve of his fur trapping hobby, but they didn't outright forbid it either. On that afternoon, John laid his bike down alongside the road and marched a few paces into the woods scowling at the rusted cans and other refuse people had carelessly tossed aside along the road. One object that caught John's attention was a large cardboard box lying on its side. He was certain it hadn't been there the last time he'd come through to check his traps. And considering the cardboard hadn't completely disintegrated from the snow and rain, he knew it must not have been there for very long. 
Curious, John leaned over and tried to stand the box upright. Anne was surprised when he realized there was something heavy inside that shifted around. He laid the box back down and peered inside. He saw what he thought at first glance was a naked doll, partly wrapped in a blanket. Just a bit of the head was poking out. He could see the doll's hair had been savagely cut like something a deranged barber or an angry child with his mommy's scissors might have done. John began to get a sick feeling in his stomach as he looked closer and realized that this was no doll. John stumbled back, horrified upon realizing he was looking at the body of a child. At the same time, John began to have this sinking feeling inside him that he might get in trouble if he revealed what he found. He knew that if he told the authorities, the police might take his traps away. So John made the terrible decision right then and there to climb back on his bike, pedal home, and tell no one of what he had discovered. When his mother and father asked why he was back so early, he told them he wasn't feeling well and went straight to his room. A few days later, on the afternoon of Monday, February 25th, a junior from LaSalle College named Frank Guthrum was driving home from class along Susquehanna Road when a rabbit darted out in front of his car. Officially, the story he would tell police later on was that he decided to pull over and get out of his car to chase the rabbit because he knew there were traps in the area. Unofficially, some investigators later speculated that Frank might have been planning on traipsing through the woods to peep in the windows of the nearby girls' school. In either case, Frank did stumble his way onto the same path, where the cardboard box lay that John Stachowiak had discovered a few days earlier. Frank peered inside the box and made the same horrifying discovery that Stachowiak had made. Also like John, at first Frank was reluctant to report what he found to the police. But after hearing about a missing little girl named Mary Jane Barker, Frank wondered if that's who he'd found and finally told the authorities. It wasn't Mary Jane, though, but the body of a little boy, around four to six years old. Soon, investigators were combing the area looking for clues. Little did anyone know that even today, more than six decades later, the identity of the boy in the box as well as who murdered him, would remain a mystery. I'm Nate Hale, the original inspiration for Where's Waldo, and this is The Conspirators. If the boy in the box were alive today, he would have been around 70 years old. No one knows exactly how old the child was back in 1957, but the state of his body tugged on a lot of heartstrings. Because of the story it told of the terrible life this little boy must have suffered. He was 40 inches tall and just 30 pounds with a full set of baby teeth. The best estimates put him at between 4 to 6 years old, but it's possible he could have been older and just terribly malnourished. His nude body was badly bruised and wrapped in a rust and green-colored Indian patterned blanket. The medical examiner determined the cause of death to be blunt force trauma to the skull. The most noticeable marks on his body were the four round circular bruises along his forehead. His blue eyes stood partially open in death. 
and his small lips were parted and crusted with blood. He was so badly starved, his tiny ribs stood out through his almost translucent skin. Whoever dumped his body had also given the boy a savage haircut, probably just before or after death. This was determined because there were still several hair clippings clinging to his torso. Other than that, the boy's body was clean and his nails were trimmed. The skin on his right hand and feet were pruny, as if he'd been submerged in water immediately prior to or just after death. The boy had surgical scars on both his ankle and groin, and another L-shaped scar below his chin. Although the cold weather had preserved his body somewhat, he'd been dead long enough for greenish rot to set in. The coroner estimated he'd been dead anywhere from three days to two weeks prior. By the time the boy's body was brought to the morgue, the entire Philadelphia Police Department was speaking in hushed whispers about the terrible discovery. These were mostly robust, tough guys, many of them vets who'd served in Korea or World War II. But something about this boy's death in particular touched them all. Detective Bill Kelly in particular would remain haunted by the case throughout his life. He had a four-year-old son who was about the same age as the boy in the box, as well as a three-year-old daughter and a wife who was pregnant with another. Kelly's family was growing so fast he had to supplement his salary as a police officer by moonlighting as a wedding photographer. Kelly was the head of the department's fingerprint division, and he personally inked the child's tiny fingertips in the morgue and pressed them onto paper. That night after he went home, Detective Kelly hugged his son just a little bit tighter. Word of the child's discovery became a nationwide sensation in the press. The papers dubbed him the boy in the box after a police teletype was sent out to all 48 states asking for information about the boy's identity. More than 400,000 flyers were printed up by the Philadelphia Inquirer. They were handed out on street corners, plastered on shop windows, and enclosed with every gas bill. The flyers and the boy's photograph that appeared in newspapers touched a nerve with a lot of people. The boy's half-lidded eyes, rough-chopped hair, and moon-shaped bruises on his forehead told a terrible story. Other photos were also taken of the boy and distributed where the police actually dressed him up in clothes and propped him up in a chair, in the hope someone might recognize him if he appeared a little more lifelike. A New York airman came forward early on and told police he thought the boy might have been his kidnapped son, Stephen. Another boy from West Philadelphia told authorities he was certain the boy was his missing kid brother. Another woman told police the boy might have been her son, who was supposed to be in the care of her no-good ex-husband. None of these leads panned out, though. At one point, a man phoned in a tip saying he'd driven through Fox Chase a few days earlier and had spotted a woman and a child about 12 years old standing by the trunk of a car. When he pulled over and called out asking if they needed help, the woman just waved him off. The witness said he never got a good look at the woman's face, though, and didn't pay much attention to the vehicle she was driving. Police received hundreds of such tips, many of them vague or unhelpful. Police canvassed the area and checked with every orphanage, foster home, and hospital throughout the city. But they were never able to locate any child matching the boy in the box's description. Nearly 300 police academy recruits were called out to help search the area where the boy's body was found. They found a handkerchief, a child's scarf, and a child-sized blue corduroy cap 
They also found a dead cat wrapped in a man's sweater. The problem with the area was there was so much trash dumped around there it was practically impossible to tell what was important and what wasn't. Police ran an article in a pediatric journal hoping some doctor would come forward to say they had worked on the boy, but none did. They determined that the cardboard box the boy's body had been discarded in had once held a white baby bassinet. Eleven such bassinets had been sold for $7.50 apiece from the J.C. Penney store in Upper Darby. All the purchasers had paid in cash. Police were able to track down nine of the purchasers, although none of those individuals appeared to have anything to do with the case. They also traced the blue cap back to the original manufacturer. The hat maker told police she had sold the cap to a blonde man in his late 20s or early 30s. She remembered him because he had requested she add on a leather strap and buckle. But she didn't get his name, and the man paid in cash as well. Being a print expert, Bill Kelly took it upon himself to use his free time to search for the boy's identity, utilizing his particular field of expertise. He knew that all babies' footprints were recorded at birth, so that meant if the boy had been born anywhere in the area, then his footprints had to be on file somewhere. The police department wouldn't pay the overtime, though, so Kelly spent hundreds of hours on his own time, pouring through hospital records and comparing the prints he'd taken from the mystery boy with those in the hospital birth records. He even went to the Good Shepherd Girls' home to request adoption records for any out-of-wedlock babies that might have come through there as well. It took Kelly nine years, but he finally searched every single hospital birth record, and yet still came up empty. Kelly wasn't the only one doggedly working the case either. He met up with the medical examiner's investigator named Remington Bristow, who also took a particular interest in the mystery. The two investigators often met up and compared notes. They both agreed that the boy's abusive parents or caretakers must have been the ones who killed him. They suspected they'd gotten a little too rough with him one night, probably during bath time. It's possible the four deep bruises on his forehead actually came from a set of rough fingers gripping the boy's skull during a haircut. Or perhaps the haircut occurred post-mortem to help destroy evidence, or even to hide the child's identity. Bristow tried a number of different tactics to identify the boy or his parents. He planted a story in the local paper speculating that the boy's parents might have been too poor to afford a funeral. Only no one came forward. He offered a $1,000 reward he'd scraped together himself, but there were no takers. After five years, he consulted a New Jersey psychic. Bill Kelly learned later on that Bristow once had a daughter who died of crib death, which often made him wonder if that was at the heart of Bristow's obsession with the case. Bristow and Kelly both suspected that because the boy had no vaccination scars, that perhaps his parents had been living under the radar. It's possible they were vagrants of some sort. One possibility they considered was that he might have been the child of carnival workers or perhaps illegal immigrants. One day in 1956, Kelly was reading an article about the rise of Hungarian refugees in the area and came across a photo of a little boy who resembled the boy in the box. But after an extensive search of more than 11,000 passport photos, state troopers were able to identify the child and trace him back to his home where he was alive and well and living in North Carolina. 
As the years dragged on, Kelly became worried that Bristow's obsession with the case was leading him in some wild directions. One time during a vacation in Mexico, Bristow got the notion that perhaps the boy's parents had been raising him as a girl. So he paid a street artist to draw a sketch of the boy with long hair and dressed in girls' clothes. Bristow also kept returning to the psychic, hoping some promising new information might emerge. Bill Kelly never put any stock in psychics, but Bristow thought the clairvoyant provided him with some valuable information. The psychic told Bristow he was certain the boy had died in or near a log cabin that stood near a body of water. He also said there would be a wood railing running along the area. In fact, Bristow did find a matching log cabin in a pond right next to a large foster home. The property was also bordered by a wooden railing. In 1961, Bristow got to look around the foster home during an estate sale and found a dusty baby's bassinet in the basement. He also found blankets hanging on a clothesline that were similar to those the boy's body had been wrapped in. Bristow was certain he was finally on to something. He had long speculated that the boy might have died as a result of an accident. He also suspected the boy might have belonged to the stepdaughter of the man who ran the foster home, and that the pair kept the boy's death a secret to hide the fact that she was an unwed mother. Bristow further speculated that the boy may have fallen down the stairs or out a window, and the home's caretakers panicked and hastily disposed of the body in the bassinet's cardboard box they had lying around. But police records showed that all the children fitting the boy in the box's description who had come through the foster home were accounted for. And at the time, there was no evidence the stepdaughter ever had a child. In 1998, Philadelphia Police Lieutenant Tom Augustine, who was in charge of the investigation at the time, interviewed the foster father and the stepdaughter, only to discover the two of them had gotten married. But after questioning them further, Augustine determined this angle to be yet another dead end. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Before we continue, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Raycon. In just a few weeks, I have a trip to Chicago planned, which will be my first trip anywhere in well over a year, for reasons I'm sure you're all aware of. When I go, I plan on taking my Raycon earbuds with me. They're stylish, comfortable, and always there for me on the go. Whether it's for work or play, a lot of us are going to be on the move again this summer. So my advice to you is take your Raycons with you. Whether you're listening to your favorite podcast, some good music, or even an audiobook. A pair of Raycon wireless earbuds can make all the difference. You'll get crisp, powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands. 
Raycons look great and feel even better. They come in a range of cool colors and have customizable gel tips included for a comfortable in-ear fit. Raycons are built to go wherever you go with quick and seamless Bluetooth pairing and a compact charging case. They also have a fantastic 24-hour battery life. I use them all the time for working out, walking my dog, or even editing podcasts like the one you're listening to now. If you'd like to try out a pair for yourself, then listen up. Raycon is currently offering 15% off their products just for Conspirators listeners. Here's what you have to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com TC. There you'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. It's such a great deal, you'll probably want to get a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com TC. Buyraycon.com TC. And now, back to the show. In 1998, the Boy in the Box's case caught the attention of a group of mostly retired police investigators, FBI agents, and forensic experts from Philadelphia, called the Vidoc Society. This group of seasoned investigators meets each month to discuss and offer new insights into cold cases. The Boy in the Box was precisely the sort of mystery the group had come together for. The Vidoc Society arranged for the little boy's skeleton to be dug up for DNA testing. The society members were so disheartened about the shabby state of the pauper's field the boy had been buried in that they arranged to have him reburied in a more dignified grave in Ivy Hill Cemetery. The exhumation and reburial even caught the attention of the television program America's Most Wanted, where to segment on the mystery. This spawned hundreds of new leads to be phoned in, but like all the others, none of these went anywhere. It seemed like there would never be any truly promising leads. That is until February 25, 2000, when the Philadelphia Homicide Division received a phone call from an Ohio psychiatrist regarding one of her patients. The patient's identity officially remains a public secret, but most articles you find about her typically refers to her either as Martha or just M. We'll call her Martha for the point of this story. On the 43rd anniversary of the boy's discovery, the woman made a nervous phone call stating that she wanted to report a murder she'd known about from a long time ago. Using the psychiatrist as a middleman, the investigators working the case spent two years piecing together information on what turned out to be the most promising lead they'd ever had regarding the boy's identity. The woman claimed to have grown up in Lower Marion. She was the child of a couple school teachers. She recalled being 10 years old and riding with her mother to a house in an unfamiliar neighborhood. She said that in the summer of 1954, they went to this strange house and met with a woman at the door who held a baby wearing a soaked diaper. Martha recalled hearing a man's voice coming from inside the house shouting and asking if she'd gotten the money. Martha's mother gave the woman an envelope and was given the child in return. They took the boy home and locked him in the basement and never allowed him to leave the house. As the boy grew older, it became apparent there was something wrong with the child because he never spoke a word. Martha wondered if he had some physical condition like cerebral palsy. Martha said her parents were physically abusive and often starved her. The boy, she claimed, received even worse treatment. By this point, Tom Augustine, Bill Kelly, and a Vidoc member named Joe McGillan were all investigating the case. The trio were electrified by this lead since so many details this woman Martha shared with them seemed to line up with the known facts. 
When they learned the name of Martha's Childhood Street, this allowed them to head to the area and begin knocking on doors until they were able to confirm that, yes, indeed, both Martha and her family did live in the neighborhood. But no one they spoke to ever claimed to have seen a little boy in or around Martha's home. Although Martha claimed this was because the boy was kept locked in the basement and never allowed out of the house. Kelly and McGillan made a road trip to Ohio to meet with Martha in person and hear her story. It took the woman three hours to tell her tale. She said she was 12 when everything occurred. She recalled that one day the boy had gotten sick and threw up after eating some baked beans. This was another detail that fit as well since baked beans were found in the boy's stomach during the autopsy. Martha's mother snapped and went into a violent rage over the mess. She grabbed the boy roughly and dragged him into the bathroom. Then she began beating his head against the bathroom floor and threw him into the bathtub. Martha recalled the horrific sound of the boy's head thudding off the tile and his pathetic shrieks of pain. It was the only sound Martha said she ever heard him utter. But after those sounds ended, everything fell deathly silent. Martha's mother cleaned the boy up and cut off his long, unkempt hair. She wrapped the boy up in a blanket and carried him out to the trunk for a car. Martha went with her. She remembered the two of them driving to a place near some woods and the two of them getting out and standing by the trunk of a car. She said a man pulled over and called out to them asking if they needed some help. But Martha's mother shook her head no when the man drove off. Martha's mother carried the boy's body into the woods and stashed it in a cardboard box they found discarded among the trash. On their drive home, Martha memorized the route they took with the thought in her head that she'd return one day to the area. She didn't know the boy, not exactly, but part of her still thought of him as family. So much of this story fit, Augustine, Kelly, and McGillan were certain they were onto something. The one detail, though, that Martha was unable to provide them with was the boy's name. They followed the route Martha described and were able to show that it did indeed lead directly from Martha's former home to the location in Fox Chase, where the boy's body had been discovered. They also spoke to a former college roommate of Martha who told them that she had once confided in her that the mother had killed someone. For what it's worth, on top of all that, Martha's psychiatrist also believed the woman to be sincere. But despite all that, there were some investigators in the Philadelphia Police Department who still refused to believe Martha's story. They often point out that the woman has been in and out of psychiatric treatment throughout her life so it's quite possible the story she told was nothing more than a fantasy she dreamed up. Many of the details Martha provided were a matter of public record by then, including the story of the Good Samaritan who pulled over to offer them assistance. Because Martha wasn't a blood relative of the boy, there was no way to match the DNA to him either. Martha's parents died years before she came forward, so there was no way for police to corroborate any of the story with them either. And although Bill Kelly and McGillan believe Martha's story about the boy being locked in the basement his entire life, the Philadelphia police remain skeptical. Other police investigators who have worked the case have pointed out that aside from Martha's story, there appears to be very little actual physical corroborating evidence. Bill Kelly died in 2014, never having put a name to the boy. In 2016, authors Lou Romano and Jim Hoffman managed to track the name of a man in Memphis claimed to have sold his son back in the 1950s. They were even able to get a DNA sample from the man they believed to be the boy in the box's brother. 
Although in 2017, Homicide Sergeant Bob Kohlmeyer announced that the DNA sample taken from the Memphis suspect wasn't a match. In 2018, Barbara Ray Venter, the genetic genealogist who helped identify the Golden State Killer using DNA profiling, said she would apply the same techniques to help identify the boy in the box. In the case of the Golden State Killer, Ray Venter was able to trace the killer's DNA through several generations of the family line. Although to date, no new announcements have been made regarding the boy's true identity. Today, the Fox Chase area where the boy in the box was discovered has been turned into a residential neighborhood. Someone's driveway has been paved over the spot where the boy's body was discovered. After the boy's body was exhumed from the potter's field back in 1998 to extract his DNA, he was reburied in a donated plot in Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedarbrook. People often stop by his grave and leave flowers or toys to honor him. His grave has a large headstone that bears the inscription, America's Unknown Child. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Nicholas, Nina, Kathleen, and Melissa for signing up and helping support the show. You're all amazing. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're craving more of the show, if you sign up to become a patron, there's an ever-growing library of bite-sized mini-episodes for your listening pleasure. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts and helps spread the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also available on Stitcher, Spotify, and most of the other places you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, reach out and find us on Twitter, Instagram, or our Facebook page. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.